Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. So Tara, thanks for coming down today. Thank you. So Tara... Tara and Tara are talking today, which is um, a great way to be confused. But um, why don't we start, Tara, um, with you introducing yourself and the Wisconsin Food Hub Cooperative. Absolutely. My name is Tara Turner, and I am the president and general manager of the Wisconsin Food Hub Cooperative. And we are in our fifth year of selling produce. And you... Guys, when you started, um, well, uh, boy, you know, you've been in business for five years, so it's at least six years, maybe seven, way back when, when the planning began. Were you involved with, with the co-op back then, in the planning years? or The original planning was actually done by Dane County. Okay. And I was, I was not involved in, in that process. And... They did a feasibility study to determine whether or not the hub could be launched. At that time, their thought of the hub was that they would have mostly uh, farmers bringing their crops, their extra crops, into a warehouse, which would be a full-service warehouse, where they would wash, sticker, box, package, uh, all of the produce, and then send it out um, primarily to food service. And after they completed that feasibility study, um, a, a few of the farmers, as well as the Wisconsin Food or the Wisconsin Farmers Union, came together and created a group, uh, which I became a part of, which looked at could they get the hub off the ground and was the feasibility study um, looking at the direction that the hub should go in, or should it be tweaked and should we look at other options? So was this at the time when the bigger growers got involved, like you, or? Right. So Wisconsin Farmers Union was working with a couple of their members, and one of those members, Mark Olson, was responsible for going out and finding uh, farmers that had mechanization. So the group that started uh, the consulting group and the farmers union, when they were working together, decided that the only way they could get the hub off the ground is if they had some medium to large farms that had mechanization and were already selling into the wholesale market. So I was actually out in the strawberry field one day when Mark called, and he was describing the hub to me, and um, I was talking to my dad about it, and he had said that he had gone to a couple meetings in the early phase and that it was, you know, interesting. So we drove down to Madison for one of the meetings and there were approximately, I'd say, 10 to 12 different farms involved at that point. And that turned into uh, seven founding uh, farmer members along with the Wisconsin Farmers Union. Cool. So just just to, um, for, for people who don't know your farm, um, just, could you just talk about Turner Farm a bit? Because, you know, we call you big, but in the world of ag, you're not that big. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I would consider us a very small farm in comparison to, you know, many of the mega farms that are out west, or if you looked at even some of the dairy farms in the state now. 
Um, so our farm is uh, three generations. Uh, my grandparents started the farm a little over 50 years ago with a little drive-up stand, actually, and then my grandmother would take her station wagon and drive into the lake area, and um, she had a delivery service. Hmm. So um, around 1976, my dad decided that he wanted to take the farm over from my grandfather, and at that point, he was pushing that turners would enter the wholesale market. And at that point, my dad started um, filling other vendors that drove to the lake communities in Wisconsin and sold out of, you know, a pickup truck or a van. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the, in the 1980s, he started mechanizing and selling into the stores. And in 1996, we bought our first, uh, our first uh, corn picker and put up a mechanized corn line. And that's, that was our first uh, wholesale crop. And do you do more than corn wholesale now? Now we wholesale quite a few items from corn and beans to melons, um, lettuce, um, peppers, tomatoes. Not all of those go through the food hub, but we wholesale all of them. Right. And you still have a farm stand, right? Right. So we have a permanent roadside stand. And we went from the drive-up window to a market about the size of a garage. And now our market is probably about the size of four garages. And um, it's back from the road, but it's right around the corner from Hartman Creek and the Chain of Lakes. So we get a lot of people from our local town of Wapaka, but we also get uh, a number of customers from the Illinois area that come up to the cottages. And I bet they've been coming for a long time. <laughs> yes. I talk to a lot of customers who have stories about talking to my grandma Lulu and how nice mm-hmm. she was and um, and then folks that have, have worked with my dad for many years. And now you're in another ownership transition, right? Correct. So my dad and I have started working on a partnership. Cool. So, so through the partnership, you are going to gradually take over the farm. Yeah, that's the way it looks. Although I still joke with people that I will retire before my dad. So <laughs> we'll see what happens. Yeah, that's that's hysterical. But you know, the reason I I wanted you to tell your story is that um, that this hub, it's important to get people's heads around what the businesses are like that are supplying the hub, what the farms are like, Um, because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about, you know, both what really small farms are and what a farm like yours is and what, you know, and how that's different from the big mega vegetable producers that are in, say, California. And yep. and my my sense is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but most of the other founding members are farms like yours. They're multi generational farms that have been growing vegetables for a while, right? Exactly. So almost all of the founding members are two to three, four, five generational farms, and I find it fascinating because they all are very similar to ours, where more than one generation is working on the farm at once. And you have, uh, you know, spouses and grandparents, you know, doing the books and 
um, doing the marketing. And so it's this team effort to get everything off the ground and everybody's chipping in. And then you have a lot of folks that are in the family also that are working full-time jobs so that um, the other members on the farm can have insurance as well as, you know, a year-round year-round income coming into the family. Mm-hmm. And why are farms like yours interested in being in a hub? Like you were wholesaling before without it. Right. So we had actually been wholesaling into stores for quite a while. And some of the obstacles that we were coming, that we were finding were, number one, um, having that contact with the stores. So at the time we started selling into the wholesale market, you would deliver directly to the store. You would talk to the produce manager. They would put the order in, and you'd back up to the back of the store and unload. And that's really rare these days. I mean, there's stores, you know, the size of some of the Piggly Wigglies that still do that. But for the most part, most wholesale buying now goes through a distribution center and through one salesperson who's in the main office. And if you don't have that contact, um, you're very, you're, it's very unlikely that you're going to make any sales. The other, you know, area that made it fairly difficult to sell into the wholesale market over time is that those buyers wanted to buy everything from one source. So they don't want to talk to one farmer about corn and another farmer about peppers and another farmer about tomatoes. They want to have one phone conversation, put in an order, and be done. So if you are focused on selling only one or two crops, it's, it's very unlikely that they're going to want to work with you. Um, right, and it's even worse if your corn crop isn't big enough to supply the store, right? So then the buyer has to talk to multiple farms just to do corn. Exactly. So, you know, they don't want you to have any gaps in production. They want to make sure that you can supply them throughout the entire season. So working within the hub where you have, you know, multiple growers of the same item, if one farmer, you know, is having um, a, a skip or uh, a time period where they don't have, uh, if they're, that they're not producing, then another hub member can jump in and fill that gap. Um, and, and then there's also the issue of food safety and insurance. So now, you know, you have to have a very large insurance policy to sell into the stores and you have to have food safety certification. And most of the farms that we work with in the hub, um, I think actually only one of them was certified before um, they became a member of the food hub. So one of the first things that we did as the Wisconsin Food Hub Cooperative was to hire someone to go out and help all these farms get their food safety certification so that you know, they could all meet the requirements to sell into some of the larger distribution centers. Mm-hmm. So back to when you started the, the organization, um, one of the things that I find interesting is that you guys chose to be a cooperative. Um, right. And I, I think I always attribute some of this to um, being in the upper Midwest in the land where, you know, Scandinavian heritage is around here, we tend to have more cooperatives. But had your members ever been in a cooperative before, a producer cooperative, or was this the first time they did? I don't know that any of our members had been part of a grower cooperative before. 
it, it was a new experience for all of us. We had all seen each other pretty much as competitors. And the cooperative uh, approach was brought in by Wisconsin Farmers Union. And I think in the long run, it's actually served us well because, again, we had seen each other as competitors, some of us. Um, but it's been an interesting model, and it's been, I think it's something that we've all had to adapt to and learn how to work within, not something that we had ever experienced before and knew what we were doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I think one of the interesting adjustments for people is is you're in a cooperative, so now if you're a member, you're an owner. Like, you can't kind of blame the man anymore because you are the man, you know? Exactly. You only have yourself to blame, and you have to fix whatever problems you've created. <laughs> right. So. Right, yeah. So, okay, so you set yourselves up as a cooperative. Um, you have some... Um, experienced um, farms, I'll, I'll call that, um, kind of as a, as a foundational element for this. And then um, in the beginning, how much staff did you think you needed? You know, like what was the model for the hub when you began? And then we'll get to kind of where you ended up over time. Right. When we started, we hired a full-time sales manager as well as a full-time general manager. Mm-hmm. And after the first, you know, six or seven months, a logistics person was brought on part-time and a bookkeeper was brought on part-time. Our sales manager, we've been very fortunate. I don't think a lot of cooperatives would be able to just have one sales manager, but fortunately our sales manager has over 30 years of experience working in retail wholesale. So he has already built up a lifetime of contacts, which have served us extremely well. And he's, he's already, he already has the experience to, you know, navigate uh, the system and, and get sales for us fairly quickly versus someone who didn't have any contacts and, and was having the door shut in their face constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the uh, general manager position, we ended up, to save money, we ended up taking that position and having it be pretty much everything from logistics and bookkeeping to and operations. So putting all of those together into one position. So it's kind of an admin GM combined. Correct. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and when you started, how big did you think you needed to get? Um, like, what was the goal in the beginning? Originally, we thought that if we sold over $2 million worth of produce, we could um, support the hub on its own. Mm-hmm. And now we've realized that we need to be closer to $3.3 million to have to be break-even. Mm-hmm. But we've also, you know, we're leasing a warehouse now. We have a part-time, or I should say seasonal warehouse manager. Um, and we've had to add, you know, we have marketing consultants that we work with so you know we've taken on quite a bit more but we've had to do that in order to increase sales and I still would say that we're working on the leanest budget that we possibly could and you know most of our staff is multitasking in order to get that done yeah and your um your warehouse what do you do in the warehouse 
So our warehouse is used for two purposes. Number one, cooling. We had a lot of problems in the first several years with rejections because our farm did not have cooling systems on site. So we decided to install uh, cooling systems at the warehouse. So the product is brought into the warehouse and put right onto a cooling line. And then the second purpose of the warehouse is aggregation. So we take the product from all the farms, we bring it in, and we aggregate it, and then it goes directly out to the distribution center. And you're you're selling um, primarily truckload at a time, right? Right. So most of our product is going onto a semi, uh, with the exception of early spring and you know late fall slash winter. Um, so you know our our buyers want to be purchasing at least 12 pallets of product, if not a full semi-load. Mm-hmm. Right, and that in and of itself would be a huge barrier to just one farm being a supplier. Absolutely. I mean, manual labor is very scarce in Wisconsin, so most of the products that we sell it, you know, are hand-picked, and in order for one farm to get an ent- entire semi-load done, would require a workforce that, unfortunately, we don't have available to us here in Wisconsin. Right. Right. And that's probably not going to get easier over time here. So, all right. So the product comes in. It gets, you put it on a cooling line. If it needs to go on a cooling line, it gets um, repacked and um, and then you ship out. So you're not holding any inventory, right? We're not holding any inventory and we're not doing... You know, any special packing or washing or cutting, any processing, which I think was most of the people that I talk to when they think of food hubs, they think of the warehouse doing all of these extra tasks. And that's one of the things that we've really done differently than most food hubs. We have tried to have absolutely everything done on the farm with the exception of cooling and, um, you know, possibly changing you know, pallets or, or re, you know, re, uh, repalletizing products and putting stickers on it. But other than that, it comes into the warehouse completely ready to go. Mm-hmm. And, and why did you, what, what brought you to that decision? Just the margins. I mean, to hire a staff that would do all of that in the warehouse and do it well would be very difficult. And the farms are already doing what they need to do on the farm. So to take, for instance, to take an example of zucchini, uh, you know, they're currently field packing right into the boxes that they're being sold into, mm. put on a pallet and onto a truck. If we were to do it the way that, you know, some other food hubs are doing or the way that uh, the original feasibility study looked at it, they would put all the zucchini into a bulk bin and then it would be brought to the warehouse, and then it would be put into boxes. Well, then you're you're handling that zucchini twice, you know, two to three times mm-hmm. the amount that you actually needed to. And along the way, the farmer is losing more and more money, and then the hub losing more and more money. Right, it's handling, and also there's more um, potential for product damage if you're handling it that much. I would exactly. assume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. So that's so that's a good sense of what you do there. And and I've been to your warehouse. It's a beautiful warehouse, but it's 
a Spartan place, right? And and I find it hard to imagine anybody could get a uh, less expensive on a per square foot basis facility to do what you do. Absolutely. I mean, we run we run Wisconsin Food Hub Cooperative much how most of our farmers run their farm. I mean, we we don't live in luxury and we don't buy things that we don't need to buy and um, you know, we try to be extremely efficient, um, but we definitely don't need our buildings to look amazing or, or have extra space. So we do everything as cost-effective as possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I, I want to say the, I don't know if you could think about it this way, but on a, on a per square foot basis, how much your lease is? Well, our cooling, the cooling area of our warehouse is 10,000 square feet. Right. And with, and for the actual warehouse, we're paying $1,600 per month, but then right. we get $800 for our rental. So if right. we took that out, we're paying $800 for <laughs> a 10,000 square foot warehouse. facility uh, per month. Yeah, it's, it's unheard of. Yeah, it's totally unheard of. And, and, you know, the reason I wanted to bring that up is that that lease, what people pay for that lease is a big overhead expense for hubs. And if you think you need $3.3 million with that kind of overhead and that kind of um, lean um, range of, of uh, things that you're doing, handling things you're doing right, um, it means that... Um, other hubs that are probably trying to do more with the with the produce they bring in or are paying more um, for rent, that means their break even is even higher. Absolutely, absolutely. So, I mean, our warehouse was bought on a foreclosure by our landlord, and he paid cash, and he's willing to rent it to us uh, at a low price. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we're very very fortunate, and you know. That's how we've tried to do most of the things that we have in the hub is we've tried to work together and find the lowest uh, cost possibility and and keep our overhead low. Right. I think this idea of, of buying a brand new huge warehouse and, you know, having five people on staff and having trucks and, um, you know, all of that from the beginning is... Uh, I mean, it sounds really nice, but I just don't really think that it's feasible uh, to get off the ground because there's just so many expenses that you have at the beginning and so many things that will go wrong uh, at the beginning that will cost money. And so to start out with all of that overhead, I mean, I know that we wouldn't have made it if we had tried to do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, to be fair, not everybody has warehouses like you have you know, out in a rural area that is so economically depressed, right? It, it's, it, it's, it's ironic because that is kind of the gift to your hub, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we're incredibly lucky. Everything else that we've priced out anywhere in the state has been, you know, at least 10 times more expensive than what we're paying right now. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was I was just um, in a, doing a Chamber of Commerce talk last night, actually, not far from where you are. And, um, and it was with a community that was um, 
you know, I was there to talk about what I do at Food Finance Institute in Tara's Way, and what the community wanted to talk about was how they could um, stop their towns from dying. And it was such a it was such an impactful thing for me to hear because I'm I'm based in Madison and I'm kind of in a boom town here in Wisconsin and then out in rural areas like where you are in your warehouse is the economic climate is really different. Oh, extremely different. I mean, the cost of living is so much less. And to be honest, if our community did not have the lakes, uh, you know, I don't know that we would survive. Uh, most of the businesses in town just feed off of the traffic that we have from the tourists in the summer. And, you know, from what I can see, that's pretty much what most of the rural towns around here are doing, is just relying on that tourist base from the lake. Um, Mm-hmm. It's a definite struggle. Yeah, definite struggle. But it created an opportunity for you guys because you your overhead can be so low. Um, and, you know, and I would think that, um, that, that the hub over time can make an impact on the economy in the rural community just by virtue of being there and having employees. And we haven't talked about that, but you hire, you, you use independent haulers, right, that are local. Correct. So our haulers are mostly located within, you know, a half an hour from the food hub, and we hire a warehouse manager. We also hire some, you know, some summer help um, periodically, um, you know, college-age kids. We use a, a local accountant, and we also use a local office supply store that does all of our marketing. Mm-hmm. So... I think the hub is having a good impact on on the city of Wapaka. Yeah. Well, and it's also impacted the your member farms, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so part of the, um, because your, your sales volumes have increased, um, your farms, your supply and farms have stepped up to the plate and increased production and made investments in their farms. Right. So, I mean, we have increased in membership from our seven original members. We're actually up to 41 members. But as our volume of sales has increased, it's mostly due in part to the fact that our existing farms are producing more products. So they're growing along with the hub. They're uh, increasing their infrastructure so that they can put out more products, and that's beneficial for their farms. Uh, as well as their community around them. Right, and I think that that's something that that people don't entirely understand when they look at hubs and what kind of economic impact they have, Um, especially in a co-op situation like this, that, that part of the way that the members benefit is in the increased sales and what that does for the farms at the farm level. Absolutely. I mean, without the hub, none of the farms would be increasing sales at anywhere near the rate uh, that they are now. I mean, some of them are actually doubling or tripling production within a year's time. Isn't that extraordinary? It is. It really is. I don't think that any of our farms imagined that they could have that steep of 
an increase in production in one or two years' time. Mm-hmm. So that, that's got to be pretty exciting. Absolutely. I mean, all of our members, I think, have seen what the Food Hub has done for them, with the exception of some of our really, really small members, um, which we can talk about later. But for the most part, I mean, the Hub has been a very positive experience for our members. We've, we've tried to determine at, you know, at every turn you know, what would be most helpful for our members. So, you know, we've helped them with food safety. Now we're helping them with packaging. Um, we've helped them with their infrastructure. If they have questions and what they're doing, they can look to another member or we can get them technical assistance. So, um, you know, we're not, we're not like a broker. We don't just, you know, handle the sales. We're, we're trying to make them successful in any way that we can, and that's by providing support literally anywhere from A to Z so that they can be successful. That's amazing. So let's talk about trucking. So you made the, you guys made the decision to not own trucks. Correct. And is yeah. that because um, you you are pretty much always shipping um, full truckloads, or why did you? What came? What led you to make that decision? Well, I think that at the beginning, I mean, the hub did not have the funds to go out and buy trucks. Um, we didn't want to become our own logistics company. We didn't want to have to insure or maintain all of the trucks. Um, even now, as we've looked at, you know, having the smaller LCL trucks that we use for farm pickups and deliveries, um, the biggest reason that's come up is just the maintaining of the vehicle and you know, having, working with companies that can do the maintenance and make sure that your product is always being cooled and kept on the road and delivered in a timely fashion um, is, is huge. I mean, if you don't have a good transportation company that you're working with, it really can uh, prohibit sales. So if, if you have drivers that show up and the product isn't set at the right uh, cool cooling setting or they don't show up on time, that can result in loss of sales later down the line. Um, we saw that last year. We had a truck. Um, we had a broker truck show up, so we didn't use our regular company. And uh, they had a broken reefer, and they didn't tell us. And they showed up at the buyer in Illinois with a load of corn at, you know, 80-plus degrees. Right. And we didn't get any sales for the rest of the year through that buyer. Um, so, you know, the buyers assume that whoever you're hiring is, you know, basically your partner. And if they mess up, that's a mess up that you've made. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've chosen to have strong partnerships with local truck, trucking companies where we have the same drivers every time. Um, we get consistent service. And we've found that that has resulted in, you know, a happy buyer and therefore increased sales. Right, right. I used to run a company where we had, it was a cheese company, so we had trucks that were picking up milk all the time from farms. And I can tell you, you do not want to have a route business because not all, all those things that you talked about, and then on top of it, you have to get drivers that are reliable as employees and they have to, they they have to follow the most efficient routes to get places. And 
it's a nightmare. It's like a whole nother, it's a whole nother um, set of skills to manage a logistics business like that. Exactly. And, and as we talked about, I mean, we're very bare bones, so to take on all of that responsibility would be, would be a lot for our current uh, staff. So. Right, right. So um, governance, because you're a co-op, um, it means that um, your members are on your board, and um, you also have Farmers Union involved. So maybe you could talk a bit about how Farmers Union is involved to this day in the co-op. Sure. So originally when we started with our board, uh, Farmers Union had two seats on the board, and uh, the rest was farmers. The farmers will will always have a majority according to the bylaws. And um, as we, as Farmers Union put in more of an investment, uh, we created a financial committee, which is uh, approved by the Farmers Union. And the financial committee consists of um, professionals that the Farmers Union has picked to assist us with um, making decisions that that the farmers may not be as experienced at making. So really looking at our finances and our business decisions. And that's been a huge asset. Every single farmer that we've had on the board has been very excited and felt very, um, felt that having that financial committee has been very beneficial to the Wisconsin Food Hub Cooperative. Uh, I mean, it's one thing to run a farm and it's another thing to run um, a food hub with 41 members and, and uh, you know, a few million in sales. So having that financial committee has been uh, extremely beneficial. Right. And that, that grew out of the, um, that investment that um, Wisconsin Farmers Union made to help the, the hub get started, right? They, they made a big equity investment in the beginning. Right. So the first two seats that the Farmers Union had on the board were uh, as a part of their initial investment into the, into the Wisconsin Food Hub Cooperative. And then three years into the Food Hub, the, um, the hub needed some additional funds to um, get over uh, a hump that we were having. And so they invested additional money. And in the agreement to um, put more funds into the hub, um, we added more members to the to the board, which consisted of that financial committee. Right, and it is part of Wisconsin Farmers Union mission to support initiatives like this. Right, so they've they've made a financial investment, but I think it is also fair to say that that investment was consistent with their mission, their own mission, right. Absolutely. So we have helped the Wisconsin Farmers Union uh, look at food hubs, and they're hoping that uh, in this experience that, that eventually they can, um, you know, take this example and share it with other farmers unions, uh, farmers union members in other states that want to start their own hubs. So instead of you know, everyone's starting from scratch and trying to figure it out, um, mm -hmm. a model would be created that could be replicated by other farmers union members. Right. And you guys, 
um, you know, you still have you still have challenges, but you guys broke even last year, right? Right. So we were actually in the black last year, which was Woo. extremely exciting. Yay! Yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's a big deal. I, I, um, you know, businesses always have more troubles than they anticipate they're going to have when they get started, right? So they tend to lose money for a while. And the important, I tell people, the important thing is that you're on a trajectory to get to a place where you are going to break even. And then you get a model that is can be sustained, right, in, a, in, a, in the black over a longer period of time. And it, it does appear that you guys have, um, you hit a pretty significant milestone last year. Absolutely. It was a much-needed milestone to, you know, keep the positive energy flowing with the food hub. I mean, last year was possibly one of the worst produce years uh, in decades for for farmers. And so to have the hub, um, you know, go into the black on a really bad year really kept the momentum going. Mm -hmm. And it was bad because prices were bad, right? Right. So there was ample supply, and there was a ton of rain out there, but uh, unfortunately that took the prices um, down lower than they've been in years and unfortunately oftentimes below the cost of production. Right. And what happens, what, what kinds of decisions did you guys make when that happened last year? Well, our producers really had to decide whether, you know, they were going to continue shipping product or whether to till it under. And that's a conversation that we've had um, many times. And I think that, you know, we've looked at the models that large potato growers have had and um, models that they've used in Michigan, for example. And a lot of those guys continue to put produce onto the trucks because they would rather keep their packing sheds going and um, and and get the crop out out um, then fill it under so that's that's something that we're still trying to perfect and learn about um, in the case of last year with sweet corn where the price went down at one point to 250 um, for a four dozen crate many of our producers just said you know what I'm do- I'm done I'm not doing it um, but uh, there definitely is a line and and we still need to figure out where that line is and whether or not uh, it's good to just continue shipping or whether you should just, you know, close up and and stop shipping. So. And, yeah, and retailers don't understand this very well, right? I mean, you, you stop shipping. You say no when they call. They call somebody else, right? So it's a difficult thing. You could lose a, an account when you do that, too. Absolutely. I mean, our sales manager says you never want to crack the door. And this is something I've learned from him that is so true. If you let anyone else in the door to ship in product, uh, you know, you're, you're possibly giving that account up. So you want to keep supplying your, your buyers, especially your main buyers, all the way through the season despite what the price is. And so, you know, especially last year with the organic market, uh, last year the organic growers um, really experienced what the conventional growers have been experiencing for years where, you know, their price their prices went in half during, you mm. know, the main crop season and then back up. And 
So we've tried to, you know, really look at that curve with the growers so that they can see, okay, yes, the market's really low right now, but if you take the average cost um, over the entire season, you know, you're, you're not going to lose money, you're going to make money, and you're going to make your buyer happy. Um, of course, you know, when you have small to medium-sized farms, that's really, that's very difficult to stomach. Um, and, again, I think that, you know, we can learn from the potato industry and some other larger industries, but also at the same time, we are small to medium-sized growers. And, you know, sometimes when those farms are shipping and they're losing money, that could possibly mean them having to shut the door to their business the next year. So we have to be really careful to try to maintain, uh, try to, to try to continue to make our buyers happy while at the same time making sure that our farmers are getting what they need. Right, right. And it's a delicate balance. So, so with financing, you have um, you, Farmers Union helped with some equity, and you you also have conventional financing from a bank, right? Right. So we have a long term loan out through CoBank, mm-hmm. and then we also uh, have been taking out a short term line of credit through the Wisconsin Farmers Union over the winter. Mm-hmm. And then we also use grower deferment. So the last. Uh, Several years, every year, when we've gotten to uh, you know the end of the season, we have talked to our growers and we've seen who could defer payment. And so, along with that and a line of credit from uh, the farmers union, we've been able to sustain our cooperative until the spring when we start bringing in a larger amount of money again. Right. So, so the incredible cash swing in your business is something that I think people, because people tend to forget about working capital, they don't really get it in their heads. You know, it's easier to understand, wow, I need a lot of money to buy equipment and the warehouse racking and all of that. People get that. But then the fact that you have a business that goes to almost zero sales up over a million in one month creates yeah. incredible cash flow changes, right, and shortages and then um, and then a lot of cash in one time of the year, and it's very difficult to manage that in a business like a hub. Yeah, it's extremely challenging because, you know, as you mentioned, you know, in the, in the middle of the summer when we have the most production, we can be bringing in over a million dollars a month, and then we can go to, you know, January through April where... You know, we're lucky to bring in, you know, you know, anywhere from zero to $40,000 a month. Um, so we have to be really careful about how we manage our funds, but we've also been incredibly lucky that we've had the partnerships that we have with Wisconsin Farmers Union because, you know, most traditional banks would not lend us money for or give us a line of credit um, that they're giving us so that we can continue to fund our business over those lean winter months. Right, right. I mean, in some banks, like once once you are an up and established entity that has super seasonality and CoBank is an ag lender and you know, there are business there are ag lenders who understand this kind of seasonality, but they don't readily lend this kind of capital until a business has shown the ability to generate profits on a predictable basis. Um, so without a, 
party like Farmers Union, it would be really hard to get through these years you've been working your way through with um, trying to get to a place where you can demonstrate that profitability. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So what do you see for the future with the hub? Well, we're expecting that we're going to have anywhere from, you know, 40 to 60% growth this year. And I think that we will continue to see growth uh, as, as the years progress. Um, one, of the, one of the challenges that we have is, you know, if we can continue to grow uh, at the rate that we're growing at, we would need to bring on more farmers or our farms would really need to ramp up production. Um, so challenges to that are, again, money um, for infrastructure, um, having the labor force that we would need, um, and, again, continuing to increase the Food Hub's um, infrastructure and staff. So uh, I think the Food Hub is going to continue to grow, you know, over the years. I, don't, I think we won't grow quite as deep as we have the last five years. Um, but I think we're going to be able to, you know, move in further into the black, be able to maintain ourselves, be less dependent on the farmers' union. Uh, we've done a really good job of paying down our debt. Um, and, you know, we're continuing to build new buyer partnerships, and that's, that's really exciting. I mean, to move outside of just the Roundy's Kroger's relationship and into um, – other buyers so that we're not as dependent on on one buyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've also continued to uh, look at food service, and food service has been, you know, maybe 5% of our sales, but this year we're looking at expanding in, in food service. I don't, I don't think it'll ever be a huge part of our sales, but uh, it's nice that we're we're, we're creating a little bit more diversity in our sales, and and that's going to help us in the long run um, stabilize if we have any, any issues. Right, and that's going to go through a food service distributor, right? Because right. your volumes don't align without a distributor, right. food service so distributor. Food, so that's, again, you know, one of those clear distinctions between our food hub and, and other food hubs or ideas of food hubs is that when our seven founding farmers came on, one distinction that we made is we are not going to do food service. Like, we have to be able to sell a large enough volume to make enough money to, to be in the black. Mm-hmm. So we weren't looking at food service at all, and we certainly weren't looking at having a truck going around and dropping, you know, three boxes here, four boxes there, et cetera. We were looking at, you know, shipping by the semi-load. Um, but we did form a partnership with Cisco, and mm-hmm. we've maintained that partnership, and they are a food service supplier. And so to stick with the original goals of the Dane County Initiative, you know, we want to be able to service uh, our local restaurants and local hospitals and local schools. Um, we just don't have the infrastructure to do it. So we're using Cisco as a partner um, to, do, to do all that distributing for us. Right, and I think one of the things that uh, hubs, um, when I talk to other food hubs, um, 
that getting clarity about this issue is really important, right? Because you guys have gone, you, you did a lot of good thinking about that, so you don't get, you know, sucked down the rabbit hole of, oh, we'll just have one truck and we'll just do, you know what I mean? We'll have one route and then we're going to do the rest of these. And it, it, it it's a, a dilution of a business model that ends up costing people a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, it's a feel-good model. It's definitely something that, you know, a lot of people look at and they're like, oh, this is going to be wonderful and we're going to support our community. But it just doesn't work. I mean, you can't sell enough produce to maintain the staff that most of those, uh, you know, models would need. And, you know, you'd have to own a truck. Like you said, you'd have to have a distribution route. And all of that costs a lot of money. Uh, and your sales are very limited. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that, there's a reason why Cisco does what Cisco does. <laughs> um, yep. So having a partnership with them, if the economics work, can make a lot of sense. Um, I guess one other question would be that um, I see Food Hibs um, agonize a lot about whether or not to start doing value-added products. Is that right. something? Yeah. Well, so value add, so when the Food Hub started, we had, you know, a handful of value-added producers, some of them that were also farmers, that were very excited about the Food Hub. And it's been a real challenge for us. I mean, we just haven't seen the sales. Um, and for the most part, the sales that have been proposed have not uh, been at a level where the producer could make any money. So their margins have not been met. We've had uh, some large retail chains want to pick up some of the value-added products, and, you know, they want a pallet discount. And our producers, uh, you know, they're smaller producers. And so for them to sell a pallet of product at the price that that the buyer wants is pretty much impossible. They, they wouldn't make any money. So... Um, that's been very difficult and definitely an area that we're not thrilled with how it's gone. Um, I'm not sure what the answer to that is yet. I mean, we've definitely looked at some creative options, and um, you know, our development uh, person has gone and, and met with different groups to see what they're doing. But, again, it's one of those things that we've tried to not put a lot of money into because it's not a moneymaker for us, and until... You know, we can get into the black and really support uh, the food hub on its own without any grants and without any farmers union. Um, it could really be an area that could suck a lot of money out of us and 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 make us unfortunately not work. So, um, well, and I think there there's a range of value added too. So, I by that I mean like this winter, you guys were selling sliced apples, which is a value-added product, right? It, but but it's still very much in keeping with your current production, uh, or production, your current volume. You know, you uh, it wasn't it wasn't going into a whole different category like peanut butter or something. Right. Yeah. So one of the successful cases that we have had for value-added has been the sliced apples, and that's gone extremely well because the. Uh, you know, the member that has the sliced apples, they do grow some of the apples, and they were successfully selling into food service, 
but they weren't able to get into retail. So by joining the food hub, they're now selling, you know, several pallets a week into retail. So it's, it's successful for them, and the prices are, are uh, in line with what they're getting from food service. Uh, we also are working with a juice maker um, who might join the hub. Um, so we're looking at some larger scale value-added members, uh, again, that have infrastructure, have technology, um, and can hit the margins that are needed to sell into retail. Yeah, and I think the other thing about the sliced apples was it's the same buyers, right? So it's your produce buyer that you have the relationship with that would buy that value-added product. You know, part of the problem with, with taking on products that are in different categories at retail is it's not even the same buyer. There's, like, no synergy there at all. Absolutely. Absolutely. It would it would be like if we didn't have our sales manager with produce. Right. I mean, you have to have someone who already has connections and is already selling value-added products that it's, it's just a totally different category. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would need to invest quite a bit in that area to get that, that category moving. Right. And so now juice, when you go into juice, you got to make sure it's the kind of juice that can show up in the produce area. Exactly. So how we got involved with the juice is actually our produce buyer at, um, I say, Roundy slash Kroger, um, came to us with the juice, um, the juice company. So again, like Perfect. the apple slice, uh, apple slices, um, the juice is going right to the produce section. So it's the same buyers that we're already working with. Perfect. So that's that's exciting. I think, you know, more opportunities for you guys to grow is, only means good things for parts of our state that are economically really not doing well right now. And it's exciting um, to see what you guys are doing. Yes. And thanks for talking to me about this, Tara, and getting getting the information out there. Oh, yeah. I, I, it's my pleasure, and I, I love working with your the hub and watching it evolve over time and grow, and it's all good things coming, I think. so. Um, and the hub is really fortunate to have you as their GM because you've just been doing an incredible job managing. I mean, just think about it. It's like running a member organization with 41 members. That's a lot of people to keep happy. <laughs> So, and customers. <laughs> well, you know. I have a great mentor in you, so thank you so much for all of your support and uh, expertise. Yeah. All right. Well, good to talk to you, and have a great growing season. Thanks. All right. Bye. Take care. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.